Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and another in our podcast series produced in partnership with the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College London. When we began the series, the challenges we were addressing were how we could face up to the climate emergency and how could we put in place the policies and actions we needed to shift the world towards net zero by 2050. How much more pressing is that need now? as we face coming out of a pandemic into a global recession and into a world changed forever by the experiences of COVID. My guests today are uniquely placed to discuss the demands of net zero and the transition to clean energy from both a policy and a practical perspective. Juliet Davenport is the CEO and founder of Good Energy, a 100% UK renewables business that is leading the way in providing low carbon energy both domestically and commercially. Juliet is passionate about creating a business that does good, one that can deliver the needs of society in a purposeful way, rather than just thinking about money. As part of this, she is working with the British Academy's Future of the Corporation project, thinking about a better future, one where business can be the good guy. Juliet, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Hello. My second guest is Neil Hurst, Senior Policy Fellow for Energy Mitigation at the Grantham Institute. He is currently working with China's Energy Research Institute of the NDRC, on a joint project on China and international energy governments. He recently published his book on international energy policy, The Energy Conundrum, Climate Change, Global Prosperity and the Tough Decisions We Have to Make. Neil, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Great. We find ourselves in particularly interesting times for the net zero conversation. Uh, the pandemic has thrown many of our accepted norms off course, creating disruption not just in markets and financial sectors, but overthrowing a whole set of accepted norms about how we work, where and in what way. The work coming from Imperial and other universities that is helping to shape a context and policy framework for a green recovery is essential in ensuring that we get this right. But before we get into the detail of fiscal policy and the new financial frameworks we will need to support a transition to net zero in terms of low carbon energy, could I ask you both to share a sense of where we've got to in the wider green recovery conversation? And where, if any, is there any consensus around what the first steps should and could be? Juliet, could you kick us off? I think there's been a lot of chatter about the green recovery. And I think there's, I think partially driven by the fact that um, I think people are amazed at what we could achieve as a result of COVID. And how we change so quickly. I mean, we ourselves were amazed that we could create a virtual company within a week. Um, Something that we've been thinking, can people work from home? Can they not work from home? And that that behavioural shift so fast, um, we would never have thought we could do it. Um, And I think that's empowered the conversation to go, actually, if we can do it for, and, and, and COVID obviously is a very tragic situation that has brought the attention of everybody because it's about personal health but if we can do that for covid can we not do it for climate and i think that's that's for me where the conversation is at the moment what what i don't think we've got to is anywhere near a kind of policy framework or structure i think there's a lot of conversations going on and the next step has to start to put some flesh on on that framework and understanding what what will that new framework look like, given that new empowerment that people can change. 
And that sense of individuals and people's actions is really important to this, isn't it? Because it's important both in the wider climate change debate in terms of our behaviours and what we do and don't do in terms of pollution and polluting behaviours, but also in sense of our sense of responsibility for our role in, the, in, in working towards net zero, both as consumers and as individuals. And I'm intrigued that you say that, that the, you, you did that in a week almost, you transformed your company in a week. Have your staff's behaviours changed a lot, do you think, as a result of that? I'm, I guess working for good energy, people are fairly committed to, to the whole kind of green, green revolution anyway, but do you yeah. feel their behaviours have changed? Well, I think people have become much more accepting of a different mode of working. So everybody's much more accepting that a child might wander in at any point. Um, the, the, you remember the BBC, was it the BBC journalist who had his daughter come in and help present <laughs> during a moment? And that went viral. I mean, that's a day-to-day challenge for anybody in business today that, yeah. that you could be disrupted. And I think we're becoming more accepting of that as part of our lives that that um, the, the, the old-fashioned approach of where we go into an office and we become somebody different actually that that melding of our lives and and that behavior of our lives can change. Um, I think also that um, I presented recently with Chris Stark to the Foreign Office to talk about sort of what the potentials are. And Chris Stark from the CCC, one of the things he said in his presentation was 60% of the changes that we needed were driven in part by behavioral change. So technology can drive a lot of this, but a lot is going to have to come from behavioral change. And, And I guess... That has always been the elephant in the room for the energy sector. Um, 20 years ago, when I first started going to senior board meetings as part of the energy industry, everybody felt that consumers could not change. They didn't believe that consumers would respond to economic signals. They didn't believe that they could be part of the solution. I think that was probably a, a different journey than I've always been on, that I do believe in consumers. And I do believe that technologically supported consumers can change. And and for me, this is the big part of the puzzle um, that needs to shift. And I'm hoping that policymakers now embrace this um, as uh, that the population can can make a difference as part of this um, solution on climate. Neil, you come to it very much from a policy um, research perspective, um, both from Grantham and your previous roles. What, what's your sense of, of, of where we are in some of those green recovery conversations and the sorts of things that Juliet's been describing? Well, I'd very much like to pick up what Juliet was saying about behavioural change, because that's quite central to this paper I've written, that so far, most of the... The UK has a pretty good record of reducing its carbon emissions in the last yeah. decade, but so far... Most of it has been done in a way that doesn't really affect consumers in their behaviour. There's some cost effect, but you know, electricity still comes through the plug and doesn't make any difference to the consumer, whether it's uh, renewables or, or coal or whatever. But now, and certainly as we head for net zero in 2050, we're getting into the territory where consumers will be directly affected, whether it is changing from petrol to electric vehicles, whether it is finding other ways of heating their homes than through, uh, through gas, or whether it is allow, adapting their electricity consumption or allowing their electricity consumption to be adapted to the availability of, uh, of renewable energy. And together with that is the question of cost and whether part of this is going to have to be more expensive energy. And really the single 
message of my paper is that we need to bring this, all this to the surface. We've got to have much more of a debate about this. You know, to some extent, we've got to move away from the thing where the issue is, you know, I mean, I'm not, by the way, praising the oil companies, but you know, it's not just a matter of attacking the oil companies or attacking the government or challenging, although those things are relevant. It's also about, you know, what is our future? How are we going to behave? And as Juliet has rightly said, there is a question of cost, although it's now in a slightly different context, and we'll probably come into that as we recover from the cost issue is in a slightly different context from when I wrote this paper. But, um, you know, how society can meet these costs is also a very important issue uh, for debate. So, you know, I'm with Julian, you know, let's bring this to the surface, let's have a debate around this. And I think it is helped by the fact that we've had these spectacular changes in behavior around the COVID crisis. It's not all good to be at frank in terms, well, of course, it's a disaster in terms of human health and all that, but let us not disguise that. But also, you know, there are some aspects of it which are certainly helpful to the, to the Green Revolution. There are some which aspects are not quite so, quite so helpful. What would you say is less helpful? Well, I think in terms of, you know, public focus, the, the crisis has pushed climate change off the, the headlines, off, you know, down the list of, of things. And I personally think it's really quite unhelpful that this Glasgow summit has been postponed without very much, uh, you know, I don't want to dwell on negatives, but I think that's unfortunate because the Glasgow summit was when uh, the nations of the world were supposed to come together and present their next step in tightening their carbon targets. And although some countries have done that, we have this new net zero by 2050, I think it's a disappointment. It's the, obviously it will be reconvened next year, which is great, but I don't want to dwell on the, on, on the exhibit, but I think it's a bit misleading to present the core crisis as all positive for climate change. I don't think it is. Of course, in the short term, there's a big reduction in emissions, unprecedented reduction. You know, the world is down about 8%. The UK for the period of lockdown probably be down 20 or 25%. I mean, it's unprecedented reduction. So that is great. Uh, but of course, it's short term and there will be a bounce back. We're already seeing that in China. Mm. And there's a couple of issues really, aren't there? One is that obviously we face a, an enormous financial burden coming out of, of the pandemic, which which will shift the focus away from being able to afford some of the climate change mitigation actions that we might have invested in. So there's another pressure. Um, and, and I think the other is just in terms of that energy use. I mean, while energy use is down, that's all energy. So that includes, you know, obviously energy produced by, by green and renewable companies as well. So, so there's, a, there's a financial hit for the, for the producers as well. And, and your paper is very well, much well, focused... Well, could I just comment on that? Because I don't... Yeah. Think, I yeah. mean, the thing about finance is... Uh, yes, it's true. The government will have a, a huge financial challenge. They've got to raise, I think, 250 billion of extra of, of extra borrowing. But there needs to be a huge fiscal stimulus to get the economy back on the road. Yeah. And part of that fiscal stimulus can be and should be in green investment. So it's a it's a, a you know, it's a complicated situation. But certainly one aspect is although the government will you know, will eventually have to find a way to rebalance the finances. For the short and perhaps even medium term, the need for fiscal stimulus will be overwhelming. And some of that can be, can, can be green. So 
And there's a lot of people commenting on this you know, in America and the UK. There's a very interesting study by Cameron Hepburn for you know, Oxford University. So the financial aspect of this, for the at least for the short and medium term, may be quite positive. There may be you know real opportunities there. And and just just to come to the point on um, renewable generators, that there will obviously be people um, who are supplying renewable energy who whose potential demands down. But most of the renewable generators are actually taking up the slack in the energy system. So what we're seeing is not renewable generators turned down. We're seeing a bigger proportion of our electricity in this country being generated by renewable energy, which gives other challenges. But actually, that's really important because that's what the future is going to look like with a larger percentage of renewables on the system. We need to understand what the infrastructure costs on that and what are what are the regulatory costs to the way um, we're doing things today that were basically built and put together in a high carbon world that we really need to address now so that we don't build in extra costs going forwards. Because that, that's what really does worry me, is that we, we actually don't repurpose our systems and our regulation to deliver this at least cost. Yes, if I could pick up on that, because I think there are many areas where we can focus investment that will help to rebuild build the economy in green energy. But two that I would like to focus on is the pilot schemes that we're building. This is relevant to behavior. We have pilot schemes in two areas, two specific areas. One is hydrogen. We have pilot schemes that are just starting as to have just to the extent to which uh, you can uh, replace natural gas with hydrogen in gas networks. Now, I don't think we know yet quite how well this, this will work, but if it works, it could be the most promising solution to getting away from burning gas in domestic central Asia, which is one of our biggest and most difficult to address sources of, of greenhouse gas emissions. So pilot schemes into the viability and practicality of switching to hydrogen, I think are very important. I like to see them expanded. And the other area is pilot schemes on the flexibility of domestic consumption. Again, we are launching some. I would like to see that expand because a critical issue if we, when we become very highly dependent on renewables is you know, how adaptable is the demand side. And I think the jury is out on that. We don't really know. I think the hope is that people will adopt schemes probably run by advanced energy companies in which almost without them noticing their electricity power consumption adapts according to when power is available, available most cheaply. But we don't know how adaptable they are. And I think finding that out is one of the crucial areas for investment. Neil, that's really interesting. And I'm sure Juliet will want to comment particularly about that behaviour thing. But could I just ask you for the benefit of listeners, when you say pilot schemes, can you just sketch out what do you mean by that? Is those Are those schemes being run by by research institutes like Grantham, or or are these being put together by energy companies? And They're being run by research institutes in collaboration with local authorities. Okay. They're starting to, you know, apply it to significant numbers of consumers, actually. That's the idea, yeah. Okay. And are these like the schemes, for example, I think there's one in Scotland, isn't there? And then there's another one in Oxford that we have talked about in the past on the pod, or are these different pilot schemes? I remember there's one in Hull that is to do with with hydrogen. Right. The electricity ones are located, yeah. 
Okay. So, okay. And, and and actually, I think there are there are a reasonable number. I mean, we were involved in a, two schemes. Um, one was a European scheme, which was um, a bunch of European research institutes and a couple of co- companies like ourselves looking at the virtual power station concept, which is where you aggregate a significant number of small um, customers together and you feed them data and information. Um, and you, you set up a standard um, set of customers who you feed no data and information to, then you start to feed them data and see whether that changes their behavior. And there is definitely um, green shoots that you do get behavioral change. Um, but the biggest behavioral change you get is where they can hand over automatically to somebody else to flex it for them. Um, We've also done some research um, most recently, lots of last year, which was looking at um, using electric vehicles to not only take power from the grid at different times, but also to back up the grid on frequency response. So you're pumping power back from electric vehicle batteries into the grid as well. So you're going both ways. Um, and I think we're also seeing the opportunity to 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 flex renewable generators themselves, um, and we need to see more of that. Um, the the issue has been is because I would say Brexit is we've been fairly static in strategic direction on energy policy in the UK that none of these things have really been thought about at at a high level. There's been some there's been some pilots. There's been some some small bits moving forwards but not enough on a system-wide approach mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with Neil on that on hydrogen I think I think hydrogen is a real possibility for um, heating fuel but on unless that there is there are some limitations on the infrastructure so there's only a certain amount I think it's we can put 20% volume um, hydrogen into the current infrastructure I may be wrong on my numbers but it's around that um, so, so you can answer some of the question on on heating with hydrogen, but not all of it. Biogas is another part. So we think we, we're kind of investigating to see what the total waste biogas potential to put into the grid is as well. But, but potentially, I think there's still going to be a gap that we need to start thinking about how you start to fill with behavioural change. Mm-hmm. And do you see electrification of the heating system um, in the UK as well? And, and that is... For me, if you were looking at a piece of research, um, that's the piece we also need to be looking at is really running a bunch of scenarios of what is the best way forward for our heating system in the UK. Um, can I just say, I agree with, with Julia. You know, there are two big options for adapting home heating, which is one of the most difficult things to crack. One of them is, I mean, Julia is right at the moment, you can't put more than 20% into the existing grids, but you know, there is a possible vision where you adapt people's boilers, and if you mm-hmm. have all plastic uh, piping, which we're getting towards, in theory, you could run uh, home heating entirely on, on hydrogen, but it involves a lot, of, a lot of changes. And the other big option is, as Juliet says, electricity. Maybe that will be the answer. Probably it involves heat pumps. It involves very highly insulated, insulated homes. And we do need to explore both of them, I, I quite agree. Yeah. This naturally raises the the issue, I guess, of of who's who's paying, and 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 your your paper, Neil, is very is very much focuses on that, you know, paying for net zero, and that fiscal framework. I mean, for, I think for many people, they would love to make that swap to renewable and to green energy. It's often perceived yeah. to be a more expensive option, um, and I think, as as you rightly say, Neil, in your paper, you point out that that some of the some of the um, costs of of clean energy are in fact 
fact kind of regressive in the sense that it is more expensive and those people who can least afford it are less likely to make those choices or less able to make those choices. Um, so I suppose there's an issue here about who is paying and and, and it's either, you know, is it either the the, 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 the state and is there um, support for people to, to make the switch or do we ask the producers to pay or do we cover it through taxation? So it's quite a complex issue around the, the payment systems. Neil, could you just sketch out for us where you think those those big questions lie and what some of the answers might be around how we pay for this transition? Yes. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that renewable energy now isn't expensive. New renewable energy is cheaper. Even offshore wind is, well, it's about the same, but it look, there's a prospect that it may actually be cheaper than the power we have now. Nevertheless, the transition is expensive because you've got to make enormous investments in the grid and whatever it is, charging for... Uh, um, for electric vehicles uh, and and adapting people's home heating, so you know there are big costs. And the the climate change committee took it, put it at one to two percent of GDP, which is you know tens of tens of billions of pounds every year. The context has changed a bit, as I was saying earlier, because the government is going to have to put in a huge fiscal stimulus for the next year or two, but eventually. The economy has got to be has got to be rebalanced. And the other caveat I would say is the cost in terms, certainly if you look at it in terms of government spending, different ways of looking at the cost, depends enormously on the willingness of people to adapt. So it, the cost isn't a fixed thing and also depends on technology. Now I sort of started this from a slightly economist point of view, saying, well, we ought to have carbon pricing, partly to raise revenue, but also partly because in theory. That is, the economists will say, that is the way you get the most efficient adaptation of the economy. But actually, when I look at this in more depth, I think you have to look at it carefully sector by sector. I mean, the transport sector, we already have what in effect is an enormous carbon tax, is the tax on petrol. And the issue there is, you know, can we afford to maintain that as electric vehicles become more popular? Because the government's going to lose an awful lot of revenue as that, as uh, electric vehicles come in, less people going to How do we manage that? And again, that's a regressive tax, isn't it? Because very often it's poorer families who are running much older, which are likely to be petrol or diesel vehicles for much yes. longer. Because I think the price premium. Which needs public debate. The fact that in the UK, poor people own cars. The lowest percentile, you know, tend, often own cars and they often need them to commute every day and they often own rather inexpensive secondhand cars. And achieving a transition to all electric vehicles in a way that doesn't hurt those people is difficult and may require a fair amount of government funding in terms of, uh, you know, subsidies for switching from. So that's, that's one of the important areas. Then if you look at home heating, you see at the moment we subsidize home heating. Domestic gas actually pays at a lower rate than the standard rate, 5% instead of 20%. That's enormous. And when, by the way, when people talk about, oh, we subsidize in the UK, we subsidize fossil fuel. Actually, that's what they're talking, they're talking about. They tend not to say so, but what they're actually talking about, that is by far the biggest subsidy of fossil fuel in the UK. So how can you manage that situation? It's, it is, frankly, politically and socially, I think, unrealistic to say, well, we're just going to raise you know, put an extra 15% on everyone's gas bill. Is that socially acceptable? I don't think so. But there's a lot of debate around, could you 
do that if at the same time you either pay the money back, uh, the Americans have this idea of a carbon dividend, pay the money back at a flat rate to all households, or perhaps even better in a way that is focused on less well off. So could you manage that piece of sort of social engineering? And I think my answer to that is not without a lot of public debate, because people are deeply suspicious of this sort of government. And government say, oh, we're going to put 15% on your gas. But don't worry, you'll get that back in some other... And people say, ah. It takes a lot of debate and persuasion for people to accept that kind of, uh, that kind of thing. And just to finish briefly, then if you look at the area of industry, the other very big area, you face the challenge of keeping industry competitive. The way, one way people want to keep industry competitive is by having taxes on the carbon content of imported goods. Very difficult in terms of global politics, including climate, climate politics. So maybe I've spoken enough about it, but I'm trying to get a little bit below the surface of what carbon pricing actually means in different sectors. And starting from where we are today, where we have a range of, you know, we've got the European trading mechanism, we've got uh, the climate change levy. You know, starting from where we are, what does it mean in practice? So I think you need to get below the surface and you need to have a good debate about that. Juliet, as a major producer of clean renewable energy, and you've already talked about changes in infrastructure, what do you think that route forward looks like? I mean, in terms of, is it about taxation? Is it about creating a new framework? Or, or is it about just really pushing people to change behaviour so they go with those, 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 they absorb some of those additional costs? I think it's do? a... I think it's a combination of all of those, to be honest. And I think I think one of I, I would completely agree with Neil. I think um, I, I many years ago um, did work on European energy policy um, and um, had to write a paper on uh, the European Energy Directive on carbon taxing, uh, which was a fascinating and hugely political paper because because essentially you're asking you're going to put a tax on people and they find that very hard and 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 you also question in the context of a marketplace that is so complex. I mean, I think we know there's something like 11,000 pieces of regulation in the electricity market alone in the UK. You put a carbon tax on top of that. And of course, the two, the interface between those two policies just don't work because you've got got, um, a bunch of regulation that just is uh, potentially operating in completely the opposite way. And I think this for me is one of the key things about keeping the cost down. Um, When we look at network investment and the requirements around network, um, one of the things right now is that uh, network providers have to make sure that they can connect domestic households and provide them enough electricity. So there is a connection that allows them to do that. And that is part of their license condition. So if there wasn't enough space on the network to put an electric vehicle charging point, they'd have to reinforce that network, which potentially the customer could pay for is one option, um, but unlikely the, the overall network will then, then pay for it. Um, and for me, one of the issues for that is that actually, if you said to that connection, you can connect for free, but you can only charge between these times a day, we would have a very different behavior. So you would make a decision as a, as a householder whether you're prepared to um, use your power in a different way. And I think this is the conversation we have not had. And, and I completely agree with Neil that we need to have the conversation about cost, but we also need to have the conversation about including the customer in that cost 
um, debate. So I always remember many years ago being part of a regulatory roundtable where essentially um, people said that uh, vulnerable customers would not be prepared to shift their time of day usage to change power because they were vulnerable. And I kind of looked at that and go, well, what? what? Just because they're vulnerable doesn't mean they're stupid. Um, and there is this assumption around customers that uh, they don't understand or they won't understand the electricity industry because it's so complicated. I do not believe that. I believe that we have made it too complicated for consumers. And by simplifying it and giving people the chance to take an off-peak ticket, which most people do on a train or a bus, um, you don't, we don't get that opportunity as an electricity consumer. So that, that would be my first point in terms of, and, and I completely agree with Neil, renewables are now cheaper. If, if you really wanted to buy cheap power, what you do is put a solar panel on your roof. That's the cheapest form of power you could buy today. Not switching your electricity supplier, put a solar panel on your roof. The issue is, is do you own your roof? So again, that skews it to part yeah. of our society. And do you have the capital to buy that panel? Yeah. And those are the things that, to a certain extent, get the disruption in, in terms of equality across our society. And, and I think some of those things is where government could also be thinking, is how do we support people who, who haven't necessarily got the upfront capital to invest in some of this capital structure that they might want to and longer term would reduce their costs but and we tried this with the Green Deal. I don't know whether you remember that piece of legislation that wasn't the most successful. <laughs> not, very, not very successful, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and 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 personally, I think it wasn't successful because it was too complicated. It made yeah. it too hard for the consumer. If you're going to do anything with consumers, make it easy. Um, and I think consumers will be. I think the most recent research is 74% of people in this country want to do something about climate change. So let's make it easy for them. Let's not make it difficult. And, I, and, and by making it easy, you then reduce the cost. And I think um, it, part of the cost will be driven is if we try and force a system into doing something that it's fundamentally not structured to do. And therefore, we have to look at the regulatory structure of this market and change that before we try and start to impose any other um, investment. Because um, that, that is what we, we're seeing it today. We see small tweaks in the regulation for the distribution guys, or we see more small tweaks in the capacity market or the balancing and settlement codes. They have fundamental impacts on the cost of delivering renewables. And that's what we have to really understand fundamentally. And, and unfortunately, I don't think we've had a government who's really managed to get into that in enough detail so that they can really lead properly from energy policy point of view. So there's some real challenges there for, for government in terms of policy making. But just to pick up on your point about individual consumers, I think what possibly one of the learnings from COVID is that we quite like working with our communities and that yes. sense of community connection. So the solutions don't necessarily have to be individual roofs. They no. could be community sources, couldn't they? And where we've got yeah. you know things like district heat and power systems, but also perhaps a community-owned um, renewable asset as well but, well, but having the flex in infrastructure and the grid to be able to accommodate that. I worked on um, about 10 years ago I, I sat on something called the Great Green Challenge which was part of a Nesta project looking for a green community to give them a big donation in the UK and we we met some amazing communities across the UK including the Isle of Egg who are a fantastic community generate all their own power through to a local community on the Welsh borders um, where you had 50 energy efficiency community volunteers who would go door to door to their neighbours, explain to them about energy efficiency. Um, 
And there were some amazing programs in that. And what was a real shame is that that didn't go anywhere, that project. It got some funding and, and I'm, a lot of those projects are still going on. But I don't think we've ever really taken it seriously as a policy instrument. And I think it can be. Um, I think we should see further support for communities in this area to give them the opportunity to make a difference um, and to help people who are possibly more vulnerable in their, in their communities um, so that you can, you can leverage the power of knowledge from one person doing a piece of research to a whole community understanding how to do something. Yeah, sorry, Neil, go ahead. Just one other aspect of, of um, you know, what I've been thinking about. I think it's unfortunate if we leave it as sort of mainly a discussion of taxation, because taxation is only one of the areas where the government will yeah. be delivering this. And you know, regulation is very important, and so is direct government intervention. We have funded renewables largely through direct government intervention of various kinds, paid for by electricity consumers. And I think there's a slight lesson there. Consumers may be a bit more willing to pay in their bills for specific necessary uh, green projects. And for instance, the grid costs go at the moment go on to electricity. They may be a bit more willing to, to, to pay for those than they are for a sort of generalized tax. That's, that may be a, a, uh, a lesson from the past. Admittedly, one of the reasons that they've been happy to pay for renewables is that there have been big gains in energy efficiency. And so, you know, the total bills haven't gone up. So regulation is very important. But of course, regulation, if it's done badly, can actually impose tougher costs on consumers than yeah. tax, taxes do. If you regulate where the alternatives aren't ready, aren't available, then... Uh, but regulation has been hugely successful in reducing our coal consumption, uh, for instance. So there's a range of, uh, of options uh, of options of government. One shouldn't just think of it as, as terms of taxation. Yeah, and I feel a sense of kind of, there is certainly some, some, some as you said, green shoots, I think, of hope coming through this debate, because mm -hmm. we do have an opportunity now, don't we, to rethink some of this. And, and as Neil said, put some of the investment into renewable green infrastructures and and in, we haven't even talked about retrofitting and all those other things but but you know the 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 economic stimulus can if we use it properly be a bonus and a benefit to the climate particularly around energy and energy production um and absolutely fascinating we could talk about this for hours um i, I highly recommend neil's excellent paper paying for net zero we'll put a, a link to that on the website um it, it's an intellectual workout but it's worth it um neil thank you so much for for, for joining the pod and and julia it was fascinating to hear from the sharp end and some of the issues that you're wrestling with and some of the challenges that you face at, at Good Energy. And uh, we're very optimistic with, with the two of you leading the charge that we may come out of this in a better state than perhaps we went into it. And, and I couldn't concur enough that we really do, the public really does want change. A recent survey said that only 9% of people wanted to go back to the old normal, whatever that was. So I think there is an appetite and I think we can trust the public to make intelligent decisions. So, so, so Juliet Davenport from Good Energy, thank you for joining us. And Neil Hurst from, from um, Grantham Institute at Imperial, thank you too. It's thank been a fascinating discussion. Very good discussion. Um, Thank you.
My thanks to, as always, my producer, Jim Hayward, who, who um, does a stalwart job um, in, in his cupboard, denied his beautiful studio. <laughs> um, thank you to our listeners. Um, if you want to get in touch, we're at PlanetPod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can visit us at the website, theplanetpod.com, where you can subscribe and download other episodes. Um, if you do catch us on iTunes or Google or other podcast apps, please rate the programme because it really helps us. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay well. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.